Good afternoon, and welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. I'm Bill Levesi, retired executive director of the Northeastern Ohio Education Association and co-chair of the City Club's debate committee. Today's forum features four candidates vying for seats in Ohio's 9th, 11th, 14th, and 16th congressional districts. In keeping with City Club tradition, all candidates in these races were invited to participate. Incumbents in these races have declined, and so we will present the four challengers. This 90-minute forum will be divided into four 20-minute segments. Each candidate will speak for up to 10 minutes and then answer questions for the remaining time. The topics for discussion were generated from questions submitted in advance by members of the community. Moderating today's forum is Tiffany Tarpley, an anchor, reporter, host, and multi-skilled journalist for WKYC-TV. She hosts 3 News Go and We the People, a community engagement show. Previously, she's worked at news outlets in Lima and Toledo, as well as in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. A native of Lorain, Ohio, she holds a Bachelor of Arts in Broadcast Journalism from Bowling Green State University. Ms. Tarpley, I now turn the forum over to you. Well, thank you so much, Bill. I truly appreciate it. It definitely is an honor to be here with you today. This is my first time participating in a City Club forum, so I'm really excited about the conversations that we are going to have today. And I think it's important to, to realize and understand that these are just conversations, right? We want to get to know these candidates that are going to represent our area, especially um, when it comes to Congress. Um, some important issues, I think, that are um, going on, of course, right now, and that we're going to have well into the future. So we want to see how they're going to respond to those. So we're going to start with Aaron Godfrey. He is the Democratic candidate for the 16th Congressional District. The district comprises the north central portion of Ohio and includes all of Wayne County and portions of Cuyahoga, Medina, Portage, Stark, and Summit counties. Republican Anthony Gonzalez has served as the district representative since 2018. An Ohio native, Mr. Godfrey is a physicist and works for an aerospace company in Middleburg Heights. He previously worked as an engineer for a contractor to the U.S. Navy and taught at Lorain County Community College. He received his bachelor's and master's degrees in physics from Miami University. He also serves as a member of the Cuyahoga County Progressive Caucus, the Cuyahoga Democratic Party Executive and Central Committees for Westlake, and as deputy treasurer for the Western County uh, Western Cuyahoga County Democrats PAC, a grassroots funded PAC that helps to get local candidates elected. And he previously ran in 2018. So Mr. Godfrey, thank you so much for taking the time. Welcome to the City Club. Um, I already like the fact that we are both um, from Lorain County here. So I think we're going to have a pretty good conversation. And I also attended Lorain County Community College, but I want to give you the floor to go ahead and address our crowd. All right. Well, thank you for having me to the entire City Club and to you, Ms. Tarpley. I really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, as I was already introduced, my name is Aaron Paul Godfrey. I'm a 34-year-old uh, physicist, a first-generation college graduate, and I'm from a working-class family right here in Northeast Ohio. What really got me involved in politics was the, is the story of what happened to my dad. When I was in high school, he was diagnosed with diabetes. And like many other families uh, that are just living paycheck to paycheck, we couldn't afford the insulin. He had to choose between the medicine that would save his life or putting food on our table and the roof over our head. That's not a decision any father should or mother should ever have to face. 
and it all comes down to uh, a, a simple principle. Who does the government work for? Does it work for all of us? Does it does it lift up all of us and give us all access, the, the, the ability to fulfill our potential? Or does it only work for the privileged and the elite? For example, good health care, in my opinion, must cover everyone, especially those who are afflicted by COVID-19 or who have lost their job as a result of the pandemic. Uh, in July alone, we lost five and a half million people lost their health care through no fault of their own because entirely because they lost their job because of the pandemic. The but but there's a lot of issues at play here. Like like was already mentioned, there's a lot of complex issues that are that are facing this this nation today, this year. The last four years have been uh, <laughs> exciting to say the least. But Congress has a big role to play here, and in my opinion, the incumbent in this seat has failed to live up to his role. Part of that role is to provide a check on the other branches of government, in this case, the executive branch. All of Congress, especially in the first two years of the Donald Trump administration, failed to check the executive branch. And this is kind of a long story running at some point, too, where they have just let the power of the executive branch grow and grow and grow, where we find ourselves in the situation we're in today, where executive orders have far too much power, where the president can suddenly redistribute funds allocated by Congress, which is on its face unconstitutional. And there's a lot that there's a lot a single congressman can do to hold the government accountable, to force them to play by the rules. And honestly, our incumbent in this district just hasn't done that. But there's a lot going on. Climate change is a big deal right now. Uh, I feel like in Northeast Ohio, we're particularly blessed because it doesn't really uh, doesn't have our day-to-day -day impact in our lives the same way it does in California or Oregon, where there's giant fires sweeping across the land. But Ohio can play a significant role in addressing this issue because we have Lake Erie. We have uh, a pro something called Project Icebreaker that's building windmills offshore. It'd be first in this nation offshore wind turbines that will generate clean green power and serve as a pilot project. Freshwater wind turbines don't exist in this country, and to prove that point, they had to buy their parts from Northern Europe. If this pilot project were to succeed, we would be able to establish the industry for offshore wind farms right here in Northeast Ohio, a region perfectly set up to start manufacturing things like this and exporting them across the country and across the world. And these would be good jobs that, that cannot be exported. But past that, my main point here, the main message I wanna bring up is that there's a lot of complex problems facing this country today. It includes healthcare, as I've already mentioned. It includes the pandemic, the climate change, the recession resulting from the pandemic. And the people deserve intelligent solutions to these problems, not partisan posturing, which is all we really see from DC anymore. At the end of the day, the message I want to bring to the people is that I know the struggles of Ohioans today. I have been there myself. I have faced the question of, of how will I keep the lights on next month? How will I keep the heat on? How will I keep a roof over my own head? And on top of that, I bring something new to the table. We don't have many scientists in Congress. I think there's three off the top of my head, maybe two. And having someone in Congress with a background in science tells you that this person is skilled and, and trained to solve complicated problems intelligently and is dedicated to facts and reason, not partisan politics, not posturing. I will use my experience and my background to help rebuild a government that works for the people and makes their lives better. Something that I think that we've lost sight of, especially in the last four years. We need people, and, and I, I will be the first to admit I'm a progressive person, but balance is important. 
without balance, without compromise, this country doesn't move forward. It's how it was designed by the founding fathers. I see that. I want to bring my skills to Congress, and I want to get things done to make this government work better for you and me, our families, our neighbors, not just to privilege elite. With that, I'm happy to take any questions you have. Thank you again to the City Club for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Godfrey. Um, you know, you talked about checks on the government. Um, you know, but I think more importantly, you know, you talk about what needs to be done, but how do you do that? Like, how would you check that executive power? You personally in Congress, if you were to well, be elected? I, there, there's, there's a lot of different ways to approach this. I think that one thing that the incumbent has particularly failed at is breaking from his party on basically anything. Uh, and what that means is let's look at the stimulus bill. The house passed the heroes act. I think it was in April or May and it was an opening bid. It was, everybody knows $3 trillion is too much. It was, the price bill was too high, but the point was, this is where we're starting negotiations to the U.S. Senate, provide us with your counter offer so we can work together and find a middle ground. And not, I, I can't think of off the top of my head, a single Republican who voted for it. And the incumbent in this district is one of them, but in his position, he had a unique, he had, he had a unique ability to kind of try to bring these two sides together. And he didn't. He instead voted no, dismissed the entire thing. And, uh, and, and, and I think that it, it's, it's about, you have to think about strategy when it comes to things like this. Even if, if he had voted yes on that bill, it would have added at least a little bit of pressure to the Senate to take this seriously and to do something because the caucus, the GOP was not united in this denial. And uh, that, that's one aspect. But I think that another thing we have to look at, uh, I mentioned earlier how Trump used uh, money that Congress allocated for something else to build a pointless and ineffective wall on the southern border. And they need to be stronger in that. They, they need to uh, pursue every legal action they can to prevent that. They need to be, the Constitution plainly associates the power of the purse to the U.S. House. And to have the president be affirmed by courts throughout this country that he can just arbitrarily change where that money goes is wrong. And it has to be pushed back by every single member of Congress. So um, you're willing to vote across party lines? Would yeah, and, and, I think, and, and I think that, and, and like I said, I, I'm the first to admit I'm a progressive person, but the founders set up the system to prevent huge radical change overnight. So we have to work within those bounds. We have to acknowledge that that's the way the system works. We have to stop calling the other side our enemy and be willing to work with them and talk to them to figure these things out. I think the last few years has put us in a bit of a partisan fervor. I think that and, and it's, it's really a rhetoric that's been building up for years, but we need to consider the fact that, that I'm a Democrat, I'm a progressive Democrat, moderate Democrats aren't my enemy, they're not the devil either, and neither are Republicans or conservative Republicans. We all want to see this country succeed, it's about how we get there. And if we aren't even willing to meet at the table and talk about these things, if, if we're willing to instead just fire off some tweets that just send the markets plummeting in the space of 15 minutes, like happened yesterday when uh, Donald Trump tweeted about the stimulus, uh, then then we're never going to get anywhere. And it, it, it's, it's a lost practice almost. It's the idea of compromise. And there's a lot of reasons for it. There's a lot of blame to go around, but but I, I, I don't want to get into that. I want to get into solutions more than anything else. Um, and so being a progressive, especially within this district, um, how, how, how do you reach the voters? How can you? Do, do you think you, you, you can reach them and reach across the aisle even when it comes to campaigning? I, I think so. And, and I'll tell you why. I, I think that first off, let's 
look at Sherrod Brown, Senator Sherrod Brown's, uh, I, I think it was a second term he just got reelected to. I should know that off the top of my head. But he's a progressive guy himself, but he's always come across as a fairly pragmatic progressive where he believes all the right things and he fights for all the right things, but he's willing to come to the table and make things happen to, to make Ohio better off than it was a day before. That's how I like to cast myself as well. I am a progressive, but I'm also pragmatic. I support Medicare for all, and every day I'm in Congress, I will want to see something like that pass because it will save so many lives. But at the same time, the Affordable Care Act probably would have saved my dad's life. I don't want to burn down the house I'm in because it's not giving me everything I want. And I think that when you approach people on the campaign trail, uh, which of course has been a little bit weird this year because of the pandemic, but when you approach people like that and say that, we may not agree on the same ultimate goal here, but we both want to see more people covered by healthcare, more people able to afford it. Then, then we really reach across the aisle because this is about the passion and the energy you put into it. Uh, like I said, my entire life story kind of builds me up into this being a, a, a kind of a life defining moment for me because whether or not I can serve, I get reelected after one term in Congress or not, if, in that one term I have, I can manage and make healthcare more affordable and more accessible. If I can save lives in Ohio and across this country, everything I've ever done in my life will have been worth it. And that to me is, is what matters most, more than whether or not Medicare for all happens next year or in 20 years. You, you know, you talk about Medicare for all. Um, is there anything that you that could happen maybe if you were to be elected in your first term um, that that you would that you would work toward um, when it comes to, uh, you know, make sure, making sure everyone has health care? Like wh what are some of the first steps you, you could take in this seat? Well, I think that uh, Vice President Biden has set forth a pretty good goal for uh, intermediate steps just to make sure people are covered in the near term. I think that in light of the pandemic, we need to make Medicare available to every single person who has lost their health care because of the pandemic or has become in, in, who has uh, caught COVID-19 or coronavirus. That alone will save a lot of lives, provide a lot of treatment to people who need it and just make a big difference. And, and I know people who have had the cold, not coronavirus, they, they're willing to get, get tested for that. but. People who just generally get sick, they don't go to the doctor because it, it can bankrupt them. Uh, I almost never go to the doctor myself because I grew up in a, in a fairly poor family and, and I just got used to not, you just get used to not going. It's just a part of life. And that kind of stress, that kind of, it has an effect on your quality of life overall, if not just, not, not if nothing else, the stress alone. But the, the immediate future, pandemic related, give Medicare to everyone who's lost their health care. Uh, long term, the, the absolute minimum we should be able to do is a public option. That was originally a part of the Affordable Care Act, uh, but it got knocked out of the bill at the last minute. Uh, I, I wonder now, I often think back to back to when those negotiations were happening, if the public option, option were still in that bill, how much better a position we'd be in, how much better our quality of life would be, how much better our health care would be. Because if nothing else, the public option will, will check insurers and and ensure that their rates stay low because they have to compete against the government now. You know what, I, I do want to talk a little bit about education with you. Um, education reform is one of your platforms. Um, you believe that public schools and universities should remain tuition free as well as free access to vocational schools. Uh, but according to New York Times, eliminating tuition for all public schools and universities would cost at least $79 billion per year. 
how would you achieve this? Whenever I'm approached with the question of how do we afford this, I like to redirect it a little bit and talk about priorities. It's not that we don't have the money, it's that we don't have the priorities. For example, Donald Trump paid $750 in taxes a year or two ago, I forget the specific year, and a few years prior got a $73 million refund. That $73 million could have done a lot of good, could have bought a lot of insulin for a lot of people like my dad, could have paid for school for a lot of people like myself who are up their eyeballs in debt because we were from a poor family and decided to get an education. Uh, the, the money exists. Every other first world country on this planet has figured this out. Why can't we? We're the richest among them. So why can't we? It's not that the money doesn't exist. It's that we're not willing to spend it on these things. Instead, we have a bloated budget when it comes to the, the, the Department of Defense, when it comes to endlessly providing tax cuts for those who need them the least. Uh, I mean, I, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but if we're talking about how to afford tuition-free college, you could probably get a good way, good part of the way, if not entirely there, just by repealing Donald Trump's tax cut for the very wealthy. Uh, that tax bill has been shown by studies to not uh, to to not have really benefited the middle class, from like those making less than like four hundred thousand dollars a year, and has in the meantime helped dry up our treasury. We've been posting record deficits in the last three years, partially because of the pandemic but also partially because we're governed by a party with no real governing philosophy except to beat the other side. And at the end of the day, it's priorities. And, and that's how I have to, how I want to frame this because we can do it. We have the money. It's just a matter. We all have to pay our fair share. That's part of it. We have to have a progressive tax code that stops giving tax cuts to those who need it the least and starts providing services to those who are paying into the system and those who are working hard every day to make sure that they and their families succeed in this country. So I can only imagine, I mean, do you have a specific plan? Is Would that money come from defense? Would that money come from, you know, eliminating some of these tax cuts? Is it, it's, it's going to be up to us to pay more in taxes? Well, specific? Uh, yeah, 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 of course. And uh, I, I wish I had the numbers pulled up in front of me, but but I am fairly sure that just Donald Trump's tax cut on the wealthiest individuals would cover things like tuition-free school. But here's another thing, too. The way the accounting is done with the Department of Education with, say, student loan debt. Uh, so there's like $1.4 trillion in existing student loan debt. A good deal of it's owned by the federal government. But the thing is, when these things are, when these loans provided by the government they're taken out they're taken out of the budget that year so we could literally forgive all existing federal student loan debt and it wouldn't even impact the budget because it was taken into account years ago so uh there's avenues to get these kinds of things done it's just you know being willing to pursue them and and, and approaching them with an open mind and looking at the facts and looking at areas where we can maybe save some money now, i'll say that the pentagon has been asking for an audit for years but no one wants to do it because the Pentagon equals the DOD equals jobs programs across most congressional districts in this country. You know, I I, I kind of want to stick a little bit to education um, just while we have a few minutes left here. You know, you also mentioned that you're opposed to for-profit charter schools and believe we need to support, quote, what you call strong public schools. Um, what do you mean by strong public schools and how will you make sure that students have an equal chance at a quality education? Uh, so to start with the equal chance of the quality education, I think that by having tuition-free college, you get a good step of the way there, but how do you get to college is another important part of this. When I frame an argument like that, I'm thinking about Ohio specifically because we've been dealing with an unconstitutional funding system for our school system for 
years and years and years. I think that was 2005 or 2008 that this Ohio Supreme Court decided that. But and, and, and for those who are watching who may not be aware, it's because property taxes pay for school budgets, which means there's a huge amount of inequity in school budgets based on where you live. Right now, I live in Westlake. They have a pretty good school system. I grew up in Elyria. Not so good. Not as many people who are well off. If you're from Lorraine, a little bit lower than that even. It's unequal in uh, every regard. Now, this is ultimately a state issue when we're talking about state schools. But I can only imagine this kind of thing is happening across the country, too. So I would like to see a sort of federal standard dollar per student investment in the school system, some stronger focus on STEM education, which, of course, I'm a little bit biased being a physicist. But but we do see benefits when people when you think about the Cold War, how do we win huge investments in STEM education, STEM fields? Uh, but ultimately, we need to have some kind of a standard across state lines that will ensure every kid in this country has an opportunity to go to a school that is in, that has the money to invest in them so teachers don't have to spend their own money on it. Uh, and, of course, like I said, when it comes to Ohio specifically, it is a state issue, but I would do everything I could to work with the governor, the state house, the state senate to, to come up with a solution on the state level that can see this through even if it can't happen on the federal level in, in the near future, in my first term or whatever. So we have about two minutes left. And um, really quickly, I think I wanted to get into the environment, um, just considering your background as well. Yeah. Um, you know, your, your uh, Republican opponent, he's saying that those on the other side, meaning Democrats, would have people choosing between gas in the car or food on the table when it comes to clean energy, things like that, raising, he, he gave an example of uh, raising emission standards. What do you support or what do you propose that would make energy, I think, you know, reliable, but also affordable, I think is most important yeah. for, for a lot of families. Yeah, so, so I'll, I'll start minute. by saying, oh, what was that? You have about a minute left. Okay, very quickly now. I'll start by saying if you actually read anything my opponent says on the issue, he's grossly misinformed on a whole lot of things when it comes to climate and energy. He talks about the Green New Deal bankrupting Germany, but Germany is now turning a profit. It took some time, but they started many decades ago, and technology keeps improving. Uh, but when it comes to emission standards, this thing has been disproven over time and time again. Like Gas prices right now are lower than they were probably like seven or eight years ago, as I recall. And, you know, the emission standards were getting more strict. When the Trump administration tried to cut the, emis the emission standards, they tried to uh, they tried to roll back those emission standards. And the car companies themselves said, let's not do this. We can do better. But uh, I, I, I guess I don't want to run over. I know we have a time limit here. But I will just say, if you want to find out more about my green energy policy, feel free to find me on Facebook, my website, godfreeforcongress.com. Uh, shoot me an email. There's contact information there. I'm happy to answer in detail, but uh, I want to respect the time limit, so I'll stop there. Okay. Well, I, I appreciate your time. We appreciate your time, of course. Um, so thank you so much um, for, for taking the time to, to talk about some of these issues, most important to all of us. And, and thank you for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. I love the City Club and what you guys do here every year and every cycle. All right. Thank you. Thank you. So our next candidate is Hillary O'Connell-Murray, Democratic candidate for District 14. And the district comprises the northeast corner of Ohio, including Ashtabula, Geauga, and Lake Counties, and sections of Cuyahoga, Portage, Summit, and Trouble Counties. Republican David Joyce has served as the district representative since 2012, 
A Parma native who grew up in Painesville, Ms. O'Connor Murray is a former Naval Flight Officer and an attorney. She joined the Navy through ROTC during her undergraduate studies at The Ohio State University, later becoming a commissioned flight officer and serving in Iraq. After leaving the Navy, she practiced law and aviation products liability, as well as pro bono side practice helping battered women. And she received a bachelor's in aviation engineering from The Ohio State University and a law degree from the University of San Diego. So thank you so much. Welcome to the City Club and thank you so much for your service as well oh, to this country. Uh, truly an honor to serve and thank you so much for that fantastic introduction, Ms. Tarpley. I really appreciate it. And thank you as well to the City Club for hosting us today. Uh, I really appreciate all the time and effort that goes into putting something like this together. Um, without ever knowing me, my grandfather taught me all that I needed to know about service. He had just one dream growing up, and that was to pitch for the Cleveland Indians. And growing up in Parma in the 30s, what else would he have dreamed of? He was actually great. He was a pitcher who was so talented, the Indians drafted him in 1941. He got to their farm club, the Appleton Papermakers, and threw two no-hitters in 1942. But it was wartime, and his country needed him. So my grandfather set aside his baseball career and enlisted in the Navy. By the time he got back, his shoulder wasn't the same at all, and his baseball window had closed. But here's the thing. He never complained about it, ever. My grandmother, who would raise their eight kids alone after he died too young of colon cancer, said that she had never heard him say a harsh word about the dream that had been taken from him. And that's because he was a patriot, and he placed service to his country above all else. That's what we do in Ohio. We serve. We help our neighbors. We put country first. You may or may not know this, but no state in America sent more soldiers into the Union Army during the Civil War than Ohio did. I'm proud of that. Service and patriotism have always been in our DNA. I lived that during my eight years of service as a Naval Flight Officer flying combat missions over Iraq, and I've tried to live it ever since coming home, and it's why I'm asking for your support today. The people of Ohio have taught me a lot in the year or so that I've been campaigning here. You've shared your hopes and your fears. You've told me about the issues that keep you up at night. Jobs, healthcare, COVID, uh, the cost of prescription drugs, education, the environment, and the persistent fear that corruption in Washington is strangling the greatness from our country. But mostly you've reminded me that public service in any form is both a privilege and a promise. It's a pledge to do good like my grandfather did. Now, David Joyce has been our congressman for four terms. That's eight years in which we've paid his salary and given him our trust, our faith that he would uphold the sacred pledge between an elected official and his constituents. He struck out. How do we know? It's easy, just look at his record, his votes. While he's enjoying the finest health care plan in the world, a plan that we're paying for, Dave has voted over 30 times to take our health care away. He voted no on providing hazard pay to essential workers during the COVID-19 pandemic, including members of the VA medical staff. He voted no on paid sick leave for VA medics who contract COVID-19 while on duty. Voted no on the HEROES Act, twice now. In 2019, he voted no on the Lower Drug Costs Act. What does he vote yes on? Well, he voted yes on a tax plan that gives 83% of its benefits to the wealthiest 1% of Americans. 
how many of you woke up this morning thinking, gosh, I, I wish we could do something great today for the country is the wealthiest 1%. I mean, they're having such a hard time right now. You voted yes on weakening the EPA, yes on lowering pollution standards for the air we breathe and the waters we fish. Every time that David Joyce has to choose between the people and the powerful, he chooses the latter. And of course, there's great rewards for these kind of votes. As of June, Dave's re-election war chest had more than $2.2 million in it. $2.2 million. Of that sum, $985,000 come from PACs, lobbyists for special interests. It's real estate money, banking money, the health insurance lobby, corporate money. $647,000 come from large individual contributors. Together, that means over $1.6 million in his coffers are coming from either corporate interests, special interests, or people who could buy and sell you and me. Indeed, only 2.76% of his war chest comes from donations under $200. The average donation to my campaign, under $70, which sounds more like democracy to you. Put another way, David Joyce, if we send him back for another term, will return to Washington owing millions of dollars to the moneyed interests who sent him there. And don't you think they're going to want something in return for their investment in him? Of course they will. And David will once again deliver it because he's not really here to serve us and he's not really here to represent us. If he were, he'd stand up to his party when his party is clearly wrong. If he placed service over politics, he would have called out the leader of his party, President Trump, upon learning that Russia had placed bounties on the heads of U.S. soldiers overseas and that the president knew about it and did nothing. As a combat veteran, I take that personally. If Dave placed service over politics, he would have criticized the president upon learning that the president called America's men and women in uniform losers and suckers because they fought for their country instead of finding a way not to. I take that personally, too. And I know that thousands of military families in this district do as well. If Dave truly believed that it was his job to protect and defend the people of Ohio's 14th district, he would have warned us in February that COVID was deadly and highly contagious. That's when Dave his president and the rest of the GOP knew those facts to be true. But Dave said nothing. He just sat back and let his fellow Republican lawmakers lie to the American public about the severity and lethality of a virus that has now crippled Ohio's economy while killing roughly 210,000 of our fellow Americans. That's not service, it's political cowardice. And it's been the hallmark of Dave's four unremarkable terms in office. Now, I know in the past, as a prosecutor, Dave fought hard to put bad people away and to protect the public. But prosecutors aren't politicians, and D.C. can corrupt people. I think that once Dave got elected to the House, his sole goal became staying there, and he became far more interested in the wants of the lobbyists than in the needs of people. To stay in office, Dave now sponsors or supports legislation written by the very PACs that contribute to his re-election campaigns. To stay in office, he tells lies about me rather than engaging with me about policy. To stay in office, he tries to paint himself as bipartisan while voting with Donald Trump 94% of the time. That's more than Jim Jordan does. And to stay in office, he allows our government to stay exactly as it is. Unwieldy, unresponsive, and deaf to its own citizens. DC changed him and made him lose sight of his mission. That's a big word with me, mission. It's a big word for anyone who's risked his or her life for this country. I think my mission is you, 
defending you, speaking up for you, freeing you to build your own future. And why? Because I am you. I'm a fourth generation Ohioan, born in Parma and raised in Painesville in a house my parents still live in today. My father was a UAW auto worker for over 52 years. He worked at Coit Road, Fisher Body over here on the east side, usually taking second or third shift just because those odd hours paid a little bit more while mom stayed home to raise us. Economic insecurity was part of our daily life and it shaped me. I broke my leg right before I started my freshman year at Ohio State and was told I might never walk right again if I didn't have surgery. We couldn't have come close to paying for that, but for dad's UAW1 healthcare insurance. I paid that back by studying my tail off and joining the Navy. I faced enemy fire to support our troops and my fellow flyers. I also paid it back by taking on countless pro bono cases when I came home and became a lawyer, largely helping women in their escape from domestic violence. And I'm paying it back today by standing before you as a candidate for office. I want to serve you, the firefighters and the nurses and the cops who are risking their lives for us today, the factory workers, grocery store workers, the veterans, teachers, students, your parents, all of the voices who have been drowned out or paved over by the immense and revolting greed that has seized and perverted our federal government. I'm here for the people who need our country to be better, who want us to be a more perfect union. Ohioans who thought they were voting to drain the swamp in 2016, but now find themselves drowning in it. One day, Lord willing, this pandemic will end and America will truly begin the work of rebuilding. My hope is that on that day, we as a nation will have the courage to ask ourselves the hard questions. Why did we just lose so many Americans to this virus? Why was our country hit harder than any other country when we had two months to prepare for what we knew was coming? More broadly, why do we spend more on healthcare than any other nation on earth for a system that fails so many people? I think when looking critically at the last four years, we'll also have to ask, how did we allow ourselves as Americans to be torn apart from one another on the subject of race? How did we lose pace with the rest of the world in the fight against climate chaos? Why did we not do more to protect and honor our men and women in uniform? When did we start cozying up to Russia? When did we start hating our neighbors simply because we disagreed with them on politics? And finally, where was our sole representative in Congress, David Joyce, when all of this was happening? The turbulence of the last four years can bring about a national conversation about who we are and what we value. If I'm in Washington, your voice will be a part of that conversation, and we'll get closer to that great America that we all long for. That's our choice now, change or more of the same. A sense of mission or two more years of special interests polluting our government. Representation or politics. My name is Hillary O'Connor Murray, and I'm ready to serve. Thank you. Thank you so much, Hillary, um, for your words. Um, but we want to kind of also get into some some policy. And and there was just something you mentioned there toward the end. You said the healthcare system fails many people. How would you make sure that our Absolutely. healthcare system um, succeeds? I think one of the first and foremost things is we need to invest in strengthening and shoring up the ACA to make sure that quality, available, 
affordable health care is there for every single American. Um, as Mr. Godfrey mentioned, uh, we have people out there who are rationing insulin in order to make ends meet. This is the richest country on earth, and nobody should be making that choice between their health and a roof over their head and food on their children's table. I also believe in instituting a public option. We will use market forces to either drive down the prices of private health insurance, cause them to raise up the quality of the service they provide, or see them eventually go out of business. I think one thing the current situation and the current pandemic has really, really emphasized to all of us is that healthcare is not just important for individuals, although that is, of course, super important, but it's important for our society as a whole because a healthy society is a functional society. We've got people out there right now who can't afford to go get a COVID test, so they don't even know if they're ill and spreading it to their family and to their coworkers and to their neighbors. We need to make sure that people have access to stay healthy and to make sure that they're healthy for all of us. So in the end, I think that uh, it's a priority that we need to be investing in as a society for the good of our society. Um, and, and I also you know, wanna get to this idea of something that you say, country before party uh, bipartisanship. And you know, I've talked to voters um, here recently and they're really concerned about politicians and this need for power, this struggle for power. And I think that's something that we've heard here um, lately. How will you accomplish this and make sure that you're really representing both sides, um, whether it's Democrats, Republicans, those constituents within your district? How do you do that? Absolutely. I think it is just maintaining a view of the goal. We believe in our country. I believe in my country. I love my country. And I want to see all of us succeed. And I want to see us all of us as a group succeed. And with having that as a guiding light, I think that there's no way to get off course there. Uh, I don't have huge ambitions for a political career. I'm here to serve the people of Ohio's 14th district. So I'm not auditioning for the next stage down the road. I'm looking to be a representative of the voice of the people here. So I'm not looking for uh, any special benefits from the party. I'm not looking to answer to the party. I'm looking to answer to the people of Ohio's 14th and make sure that they have the capacity to live the best lives that they can. Um, so once again, when you have the guiding light of country first, it makes all of the rest of those decisions easy. And I was going to kind of going off of that, you know, we heard a lot about your opponent and things that um, you, you kind of oppose that he has done. Um, how do you stand up to your party? Um, how, how do you break those lines? Well, I think once again, it's just it's just recognizing what you value. And if you value your country above the uh, the party, above that source of power, then it makes it so much easier to break ranks and do what's best for for the people you're talking to. Um, I think the first and foremost way you do that is simply by engaging with the constituents and understanding what it is that they want and what it is that they need, as opposed to uh, hiding and only meeting with lobbyists and the people who can dump tons of money into your, your campaign finance uh, buckets, uh, which is one of the reasons why I refuse corporate PAC money so that I can make sure that I keep that clear sight in mind of who I'm representing and why I'm there. Um, in the end, uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of Washington boils down to money and power, as you mentioned. Uh, and when you're not uh, on that gravy train, it makes it a lot easier to, to keep the focus on the constituency. Um, I did want to talk to you a little bit about um, gun control. And I want to know, what is your position on the need for added gun control legislation? 
Absolutely. Um, as a combat veteran, I have no qualms whatsoever by saying that weapons of war do not belong in the hands of people on our streets. Um, there's a lot of low-hanging bipartisan fruit out there that we should be engaging in right now. Uh, for example, nine out of 10 Americans believe in universal background checks. Why are our politicians not on that? This is something that the vast majority of the American people believe in, closing the gun show lo loopholes and making sure that um, you know we're keeping dangerous weapons out of the hands of, of dangerous criminals, which is then uh, of benefit not only to everyday people and our children, but also to our law enforcement. Um, so I think that is a really fantastic place to start. We also have seen over time that regulations like the, uh, the assault weapons ban have statistically reduced the rates of crime, once again, benefiting us all. So there's a lot of, of really low-hanging fruit that we can um, attack bipartisanly in order to serve the American people and what they want. Another thing that I've noticed is the opioid crisis, um, something that's very important uh, to you when it comes to policy, also your opponent as well. Um, what's gonna make your policies different than his? Well, I think the number one thing goes back to campaign, campaign finance issues. Uh, Mr. Joyce has uh, tens of thousands of dollars in his campaign war chest coming from opioid distributors and manufacturers. Uh, we are not going to get out of this crisis by allowing those people who got us into this mess to write the legislation that is supposed to get us out of it. Uh, we need to make sure that we hold those people accountable and uh, make sure that we we hold them accountable in a financial sense so that we can get treatment programs out for the people who have been harmed by their uh, greed in, in putting all of these drugs on our streets. Uh, also, let's look at how many times Representative Joyce has tried to take away our health care. You can't treat addiction if you can't afford to go to treatment. Um, these things combined really, uh, I think, make it a very black and white issue between uh, our, our views on this policy. If there was one thing you could accomplish um, in your first term, what, what would that be? It's not rocket science what the people of Ohio's 14th really need. And, and I studied rocket science in school. This is not rocket science. We need affordable, accessible, quality health care for all of us. And we need better jobs, jobs that are the kind that you can raise a family on. Um, I grew up in a union household and where we had some rough times, we always knew that we were going to be able to, to come back and come on a roof of our head. We went to work, you had a family life. Nowadays, we see people go to a job and then do a second, and sometimes even a third one after that, and still struggle to keep the roof over their heads. That is not the American dream that I was raised on. So I support um, pro-union efforts to make sure that we can speak as one voice and uh, and uh, stand up to the powerful that want to continue to cut our wages. I believe in making sure that the minimum wage is a livable wage. And I believe in, not to steal his line, but Senator Brown's, the dignity of work, the dignity of all work and making sure that everyone is paid fairly for that work. You know, you, you talk about jobs, um, any, in, any particular industry that, that you'd want to see um, come to your district or anything that, you're work, that you would work on maybe within that first year? First Absolutely. Um, you know, the, the global climate uh, change crisis is affecting all of us. It is affecting us right here in Northeast Ohio. We saw last winter when the lake didn't freeze over and we were losing three feet of shoreline per day because of the erosion from that. We're seeing um, pests on the rise. We're seeing our, our burgeoning wine industry and 
our agricultural base being affected, as well as those algal blooms and everything else uh, destroying our lake. We have this fantastic base of industry here that has been completely decimated by terrible trade policy from this administration that uh, is, is just ready to be reborn again and reborn in service of that new green economy, the new green industry. Uh, we can be constructing wind turbines here. We can be constructing solar panels here. Uh, and that contributes to the fact that these are the two least expensive forms of energy in this country right now. Um, we have the capacity not only to reinvigorate our manufacturing base, but to help fight climate change. It's a win-win situation for the economy and the environment in Northeast Ohio. Well, Hillary O'Connor Murray, thank you so much for taking the time to join in this forum and talk about the issues um, that you. matter to the folks in your district. So thank, thank you for having me. Our next candidate is Laverne Jones-Gore, and she is a Republican candidate for District 11. The district comprises the northernmost part of Ohio and includes portions of Cuyahoga and Summit counties. Democrat Marsha Fudge has served as the district representative since 2008. A Cleveland native, Ms. Jones-Gore owns a company that trains doctors and healthcare workers on disparity issues that relate to hospital care. She has previously served as executive director of both the Ohio Diversity Coalition and the Sarah J. Harper Leadership Institute. Ms. Jones-Gore is also a Republican Party officer and activist and has run for other offices, including Mayor of Cleveland, Cuyahoga County Council, Cuyahoga County Commissioner, and Cleveland City Council. She holds a bachelor's degree in economics and organizational development from Pitzer College, a master's degree in adult education from Cleveland State University, and a master's degree in public health from the Northeast Ohio Medical University. Ms. Jones-Gore, welcome to the City Club and thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this panel. Thank you so much for having me. I guess one of the things, we had a few technical difficulties here with our internet, but we're on board now. And awesome. I thank you well, for I mean, being patient we, we, all, we all know those struggles during this uh, pandemic. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I guess one of the things I wanna first start out is saying, again, thank you for having us at the City Club. I think it's systemic in the leadership that we have seen here in the 11th district and obviously across the board from our congressional representation that they didn't take the time out to come and speak to, they didn't take the time to come out and speak to the community. They didn't take the time to come and speak to the community. And I think that's kind of an interesting position to be placed in, in that we have electoral we have legislators that didn't want to say what they've been doing. This is not a job. This is something that we look forward to. We look forward to having questions and answers from our elected representatives. So I guess that first thing is what I wanted to mention is the fact that we didn't, they didn't even take the time to do that. That's very, very frightening for me because it says that we don't need to have any accountability to the community. Let me start out by telling you about myself. I'm the product of nine children. I was brought, born and raised in Cleveland, Ohio. I was also born and raised in nine, on 92nd and Huff in the heart of the community. One of the things we understood when we were growing up was that there was a commitment to your community. There was a commitment to self-help. When I say self-help, I mean, we structured ourselves within the community that we took pride in what was going on around us. It wasn't a black community, it wasn't a white community, it was a Cleveland community. 
what I see now, you know, I went on to college. I graduated from the Cleveland Public School Systems, John Adams High School. At that time, John Adams High School is 25th in the nation for an education. We now see our school systems have failed us. I went on to college and I competed competitively at the Claremont Colleges, which is one of the nation's finest. I went on to get my master's in education and my master's in public health. But the one thing that I'm looking at now is, you know, as a Christian, I say to myself, I was being prepared for a time such as this. Of course, I understand that this is a predominantly democratic district. Of course, I understand this. But I think the people are in such a need now. I'm not certain if the city club or the people that are involved in the city club are aware, but I think we have. We just beat out Detroit in becoming the most impoverished city in the nation for a city our size. We beat out Detroit was one and we were two. Now we're one and Detroit is two. How can that be? How can that be? You have three major league baseball teams. You have a world-renowned orchestra. You have a fresh one of 10 freshwater lakes in the world. My husband and I traveled the entire world. And I can tell you there is not, everybody's looking for water. Everybody is looking for fresh water. And we have that out here. Yet we are the most impoverished city in the nation. And when I talk about District 11, the hub of it is Cleveland. We have some of the wealthiest districts. We have Pepper cities included in our district. We have Pepper Pike. We have Beechwood. We, ha we have Bath. We have Fairlawn on the opposite ends going toward the south and summit. So we're surrounded wealth and then we're encapsulated with poverty. How is that? We have the same elected official for more than a decade. Yet our people are failing to thrive. One of the things that I have committed myself to is a commitment to the community. The community says, I walk these streets all the time. And you're saying I ran for those offices. Yes, because I saw the problem then. I've seen the problems that have occurred in the 11th district because I grew up. It was the 21st district when I grew up. I've seen the East Cleveland. That looks like a war zone in many districts. I've seen the projects in public housing within Cleveland. These are all part of our districts, the 11th district. I've gone into senior buildings where we have put, we placed our seniors in these buildings and yet we didn't make sure that they were cared for. We didn't make sure that they had adequate ventilation, air conditioning, heating. It's, it's incredible what we have allowed to happen in this district to our seniors and our young people. We have a 66% illiteracy ratio. And what that means is we have people within our district that cannot read and write. How do we justify that? How do we justify that? We have Cleveland Clinic, one of the world-renowned hospitals. We have university hospitals, world-renowned. We have Metro General Hospitals, world-renowned. We have Case Western Reserve, John Carroll University. All of these exist in the 11th district, yet we have 66% illiteracy. You see, one of the things that happens when you're talking about a congressional seat, 
I think that many of the congressional candidates that failed to appear today, they've become consumed with national attention. And when you're talking about national attention, then sometimes you forget what your obligations and your duties are as elected officials from the district that you represent. We can't always be consumed about being on the national stage when you have 66% illiteracy in District 11. When you have our seniors living in, in conditions I can't even, you can't even imagine. When you have neighborhoods who are riddled with crime every single day, every single day, there's another crime. You don't run for office because you get awards for doing this. You run for office because you're sick and tired of what is happening within the community. God has been very good to me growing up on 92nd and Huff, but 92nd and Huff was not 92nd and Huff. It was wonderful. We had teachers. We had working families. Mom, everybody in the community had mom, dad. And we took care of each other. We didn't have the decay that I see with today. No, two days ago, two days ago, the Bloomberg report. They said a tale of two cities and growing inequality within this dish, within the Cleveland. They talked about a family in Lakewood who bought a house and how prices and products and things were rising. And they had to, they gotten caught in a bidding war. The property is so hot. And then they talked about a single mom who in the Mount Pleasant district, because of the fact that we shut down for COVID, which we had to do, we had to make sure everything was right. But she is losing her home, not her home where she rents. Rents are atrocious. And they're paying this rent to outside investors, people are coming in and buying up the properties and charging up normal, just ridiculous rents. We had a stay on evictions up until September 2nd. That no longer exists. Does anybody question what's going to happen to those people who have been put out of work? They have no money because of COVID. Businesses were closed. Has anybody questions what's gonna to happen to those families? No, we're playing partisan politics in Washington. And Washington, I think it's great what's, you know, the, the interaction that's going on, but we have to be worried about what's happening to the people right here in District 11. We have one of the wealthiest districts and we have one of the poorest districts. Somebody's not paying attention. Somebody is our current elected official, not even to the respect that we can question and ask why this is happening. Why is it happening? But you won't even give us the dignity of coming to a place, an established place like the city club and saying to ask me questions, let me tell you what I'm doing because that lends us to believe that maybe you're not doing what we sent you there to do. This is not a job. Congress is not a job. Congress is a commitment to your community. And if you're not committed to your community, then you need to come home and you need to let someone else take us in a new direction. 
that will afford us opportunities for education, healthcare, fair housing. We need those things in District 11. And we need a cooperative spirit within District 11 that will make sure that we thrive and remove ourselves from the number one poorest district in the country. This is outrageous. We ought to all be ashamed of this, but we ought to be ashamed of the people that we have sent to represent us that allowed this to happen. This just didn't happen three years ago. This has been a constant decline. We've had the same representation. We've had the exact same representation for the last 10, 12 years. And this is where we've come. We need to push ourselves into a new direction. And if we don't, there are gonna be some people here who are gonna suffer like you have never believed because after this situation where our, our state has been locked down and businesses have been closed, who do you believe is going to be the least, of, the most affected, the least of us? I believe that it's my time. I believe that the Lord has prepared me for right now for times such as these where people are frightened. They don't know what's going on. They don't understand. The pandemic has frightened us all. I believe that I am prepared for times such as these and we need to take our district in a new direction. I'm excited. I'm very excited about what's going to happen. I'm very excited about the future. We need jobs. We need education. We need training. We need fair housing. We need to be believing again that our healthcare system can work for us, especially after the pandemic and especially after people who have not had adequate healthcare because they have not been allowed to get it because of the pandemic situation. We need to believe again. We have all of the ingredients for success right here in District 11. We have all of the ingredients. We just need a leadership that can take us in the direction that we need to be going in. I ask for your vote. I ask for your vote for Congress in District 11. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Jones-Gore, uh, for those words and that passionate um, address. You know, you, you talked yes. a lot about poverty. Um, within the within the district you you want to represent, can you talk or a little go a little bit deeper into what policies you would implement on a federal level that could help the people in your district who are dealing? Um, One of the things poverty? you have to keep in mind is is when you're talking about on a federal level, there's 400 and some congressmen, right? So you have to have a cooperative spirit, and you have to work across the aisle. I don't believe any initiative put, have been put in place that recognizes specific districts. We have to bring to light when we go to Washington, we have to say to them, listen, this is what's going on in District 11. District 11 needs this. And when you start the conversation about District 11 and you point to East Cleveland and you point to uh, certain areas in Cleveland and you point to certain areas in Akron and when you point to those areas and you come up with solutions, housing, housing, why are we allowing people to live in housing? These are some of these are HUD houses. Why are we allowing them to live in housing that is substandard? Why are we allowing this? But we have to bring attention to this. The one thing about Congress, the one thing that we have to look at, this is a team sport. This is not a sport that individuals can play. It's called collaborative collaboration. It's collaboration across aisles sometimes when we're talking about the Republican Democrat, but when you're talking about a team sport, any team sport, 
you have to recognize one thing, that if we don't have the initiative to say what's wrong, how many times have, I don't know, you're from Lorraine, so I don't know if you know that much about the district, but I can walk five minutes from where I live and I can see immense poverty. I can see immense poverty. Why aren't we paying spotlighting it? Why do, why are we the number one most impoverished district in America? That's the question that needs to be answered. Why don't we have someone down looking in public housing and saying, look, this is what public housing is. It's not a pretty picture. Why aren't, don't we have people over in Mount Pleasant looking at seeing the dilapidated houses that we are allowing people to look, live in? Why don't we do that? These are section eight. So we have guidelines. Let's make people start following the rules. Let's make sure they're aware. Let's put a face on property because I don't think we're putting a face on property. We have to acknowledge that it exists. We have to put a face on it. And once we put a face on it, everybody's gonna have to pay attention. It is my intention to go to Congress and put a face on the poverty and the things that are happening in District 11. I'm not trying to gather national attention, but if that's what's necessary to get us funding and to get the attention paid, because it doesn't come down to anything else other than the fact that we have an opportunity now. We have an opportunity. The country has a lot of chaos going on. We've seen what happened. We saw George Floyd. We saw the reactions. We know that there are great disparities going on. Those disparities have to be addressed. We saw prison, prison reform. Every day somebody comes on my said, this guy got locked up for nothing, right? Or he got locked up erroneously. We know we have a race problem here. We have a race problem. Fortunately, District 11 is a minority majority district. So the race problem is very clear cut here. We have to put a face on this. We have to, as a nation, resolve the issues associated with racial inequalities and disparities because they do exist. And anybody that's not facing that. And when I go to Washington, one of the things that my hope is, is that we're going to address it because every four years, we cannot look back and say, oh, we have another race problem. Let's solve it. Let's become the great nation that we were meant to be. But we have to put a face on it. We do. Poverty has to have a face. And until we do that, as I told you, my husband and I traveled to the entire world. There's no greater country in the entire world from my perspective. And I didn't just travel. I lived in different countries. This is the greatest country in the world. Even our poverty is not bad when you compare it to some properties around the world. But we have to put a face on this property and we have to put a face on inequality as it relates to that property because I think that's going to help us solve many of the problems that we have here in the United States of America. And as a representative of Congress, I believe we need to put the face on it. We need to put the face on racism. We need to put the race face on poverty. And we need to put the face on education, healthcare. All of those issues are something that we have not put a face on it. And we need to, we need to stop arguing in Congress and start focusing. You know, there's something else I do want to bring up. We have a few minutes remaining here for this conversation. Um, you know, there are several issues that you've talked about uh, for your campaign, but one of them is also improving police training. 
Um, what exactly does that mean for you? And I'm also curious to know if you support the Federal Justice and Policing Act. Let me tell you something. As far as, you know, I believe in the police. Now, you know that. But, you know, it's like my son said to me the other day. He said, you know, when, a, when you hear that whoop come up behind you, when you the police are coming to uh, address the situation, I don't care what color you are. You're tense. I believe that the police are due to be retrained. Absolutely. Absolutely. They have to be retrained. They have to be retrained. I think that we need to focus on mental illness as it relates to the policing, because a lot of the things that we're seeing now are a result of other issues you know, social services issues. I think we need to re revisit, revisit how we police in the United States of America. I do believe, see that, that here, here, here's, here's the dividing line, that there are some, once again, some racial disparities as it becomes to police conduct. But I think that can be resolved with retraining. I also believe that can be resolved by community policing. But the biggest issue of all is we have to come together as a group and say, what are our expectations of the police? I mean, what, what, what do we send them out there to do? Do we send them out there to be social service agents? Do we send them out there to be you know, mental health agents? I have a big problem with the fact that if you're African-American, you don't get arrested. In some instances, you get shot. Of course, of course, I have that problem. I watch it on TV like everyone else. The chances of you not making it through a police arrest, if it's of a magnitude, if you have this big tattoo over your body, like I have, is something very, very important to me. And every person out there that I've talked to, they're afraid of the police. Now something happened to make people afraid, whether it was the media, whether it was the fact that we didn't talk to them, whether it's the fact that there really has been a need for training all along. Something happened to have this disconnect with law enforcement. And believe it or not, it's not just white police and black versus black police, it's the police. So something we've done as a society has caused us to think that there is a problem with how we police. And I believe that what it, once we do that with community policing, I'm not certain, and I, you know, and I ask my sisters this a lot because I'm one of nine children. When we were younger, the police were very active in the community. My concern is what happened to those days? What happened to when we could count on the police as somebody we trusted, somebody that was very, very active? I believe that we have to change the way we do we do policing. Uh, I think I just got told that I'm done. Can I just say? <laughs> I will ask, just, just a quick yes or no. Do you support the Justice and Policing Act? It's yes. that your opponent does. Okay. Well, thank you so much. We appreciate right. your time, Ms. Jones-Gore. November 3rd, Laverne Gore for Congress.
All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. You as well. Thank you. And so um, we are going to introduce our uh, final candidate, of course, last but not least, uh, Rob Weber. He's the Republican candidate for District 9. The district comprises Northern Ohio and includes portions of Cuyahoga, Erie, Lorraine, Lucas, and Ottawa counties. Democrat Marcy Captor has served as the district representative since 1983. A native of Akron, Mr. Weber served in the U.S. Army as an armor tanks officer, attaining the rank of captain. The bulk of his career was spent as a trial attorney. Recently, Mr. Weber was devote, has devoted his full-time efforts in the arena of political leadership. He previously ran for the Ohio House District 56 seat in 2018. He holds a bachelor's degree in environmental engineering from the United States Military Academy at West Point, an MBA from the University of Louisville, and a law degree from The Ohio State University. Mr. Weber, thank you so much for taking the time to be a part of this panel. Thank you. It's a true honor to be in front of the City Club and all its membership and viewership today. I'd like to start with, this year cannot be a starker choice for the voters. If you support defending the lives of the unborn versus uh, versus versus being opposed to unrestricted abortion, maintaining the Second Amendment as opposed to radical gun control, which will make all semi-automatic weapons as well as all handguns illegal. House Bill 5717 is pending right now that will do that. If you support lower taxes as opposed to, as opposed to increased taxes for all, if you support protecting our religious freedoms versus turning our society into a secular, non-religious, uh, uh, place to live. If you support energy independence for America as opposed to AOC's Green New Deal, all of which are really about preserving our constitutional republic versus turning America into a socialistic regime, then the choice is very clear this year. You must vote for Republican candidates at the federal level, including myself. Shifting gears now to three issues that are particularly relevant to uh, particularly relevant to the ninth district that I would like to talk about briefly. First off, I very much support law enforcement. I am the law and order candidate in this race. I am very proud to have been endorsed for the first time in modern history by the Toledo Police Command Officers Association. I believe very firmly and gotten feedback as such that the residents of the ninth district, the hardworking regular folks of North Coast, Ohio, do not support this rampant lawlessness that is sweeping across our country at this time. I also think it's very important to bring back good quality and high paying jobs to the ninth district and all of America. The last four decades have seen literally thousands upon thousands of good jobs go overseas, largely as a result of NAFTA, which was passed in the 90s by the President Clinton administration. The auto industry alone in the ninth district has seen over 50,000 jobs leave since the mid nineties. Our current Congressman voted no on the USMCA trade agreement, which was recently passed by Congress and supported by President Trump and his administration. That agreement will bring back many jobs and replaces NAFTA. The USMCA was widely supported, bipartisan, including literally almost all 90% plus Democrats 
and literally 99% of hardworking union men and women. I would support policies that provide incentives for companies to bring back their jobs from overseas and em employ our hardworking residents of the North Coast. Ohio has great sources of clean and viable energy. We are very blessed with that, particularly nuclear energy that's relevant to the 9th District. The Davis-Bessey Nuclear Power Plant is here, it employs over 4,000 people, again, in very good quality, high paying jobs. Um, nuclear energy is the safest, cleanest, most reliable and efficient source of energy that there is. I contrast that with what the Democrats and Marcy Kaptur openly support in Ohio, which is putting windmills or wind turbines on Lake Erie, which would end up being an environmental disaster for our region. The irony and hypocrisy with this is that wind turbine energy comes under the Green New Deal's sort of environmental ideas, but the sad reality is here, locating them in or on Lake Erie would be a disaster. Most people don't know this, but Northwest Ohio, particularly Ottawa County area, is North America's number two migratory bird flyway, just second to the Mississippi River flyway. And that would, the wind turbines would be detrimental to all those birds. Uh, in addition, Ottawa County is America's number one bald eagle hatchery. And, the bald, and we've worked so hard to restore over the last 20 or 30 years, the bald eagle population and they would be decimated by the wind turbines. Additionally, no one really knows, but clearly these would have an adverse effect on the fishery of Great Lakes, including the over $1 billion sport fishing, annual $1 billion sport fishing industry. Wind turbines would provide noise pollution, as well as what I call sight or visual pollution. They'd be an aesthetic nightmare for all of the lakeshore social and recreational industries, such as restaurants, bars, clubs, marinas, in addition to folks that live on the lake or folks that simply live in these lakefront communities. Ohio takes ownership of its Great Lake Erie and no resident, including bipartisan, Republican, independent, Democrat alike, no one wants to look out and see wind turbines littering Lake Erie. Um, the plan starts with a trial run of about five or six but the plan uh, will go to over 1,500 wind turbines between Cleveland and Northwest Ohio. That's a very bad idea. We should not do it. Lastly, I want to talk about sort of, again, the, the overwhelming sentiment in the community. I think everybody is tired of the career and professional politicians that litter Congress on both sides of the aisle. This careerism that turns into self-serving as opposed to self-service self -service is a problem. Our current congressman's been there for 38 years. If you, clearly you can say that the North Coast of Ohio has not improved in any way economically, and it is time for change. It's time to put someone new in Congress, someone with uh, quality credentials and background that's qualified to do this job. I started my life serving in the military I'm very proud of that. I de the, one of the mottos of West Point or themes of West Point is in addition to creating leaders that uh, take care of our soldiers, is to develop leaders of character who dedicate a lifetime of service to nation. And in one form or another, starting with the military 
or the type of lawyer that I became, a trial lawyer, helping regular folks, individual people come up with solutions to their everyday problems. My entire life has been dedicated to service to others. I would absolutely be honored to have the opportunity and privilege to serve Ohio's 9th District as its congressional representative. I ask for your uh, vote between now and November 3rd. And if you vote traditionally on November 3rd, I'd ask for your vote for these reasons. Thank you very much. Well, thank you so much um, for your service as well um, to our country and for those remarks. I do want to start here. Um, and, and, you know, I, th I think it's been a theme, I think, with all of the candidates um, about, you know, reaching across party lines, working together. Are there any particular issues that you are willing to reach across party lines, um, willing to cross party I lines? I think there are many issues that are worthy of reaching across party lines and a bipartisan cooperation. Uh, but in particular, what I view as a congressman's duty, and it ties in with my personal beliefs and the point I'll make, but your duty as a congressman is to your district, in this case, the ninth district, the north coast of Ohio that stretches from the west side of Cleveland to Toledo. Uh, should not be um, influenced by what I call the East and West Coast power and big money influences. But I think so many congressmen make their decisions and make their votes based on that. As an illustration, I am one of the very few Republicans, uh, candidates at the federal level, at the congressional level, that I take an openly what I will call a pro-union or union supporting policy positions. The Ninth District has many hardworking men and women in manufacturing style of jobs, blue collar jobs, and most or many of those are union jobs. I'd be very supportive of union positions and would follow through with that. And that is an example of bipartisan, an example of where I am very willing to now publicly, and I've done before, is go on the record and say that I would take a position that frankly, not many, if rarely any Republicans would be willing to take. And I would support these union issues that are important. Um, right to work, uh, prevailing wages. Uh, in the army, I worked in a tank battalion, which was heavy equipment. I'm very, as well as I'm a process engineer uh, by training and worked at General Electric. I'm very well aware of uh, providing for safety and dangerous work environments. So those are examples of where I would be very uh, willing to do something that goes against what my party as a group would necessarily do. You know, one thing that you said that kind of stood out to me was rampant lawlessness. Um, I, I want to ask, first of all, what do you mean by that before I get into to my follow up question? Well, I guess just these what I, you know, had, some have been labeled peaceful protests. I would label them more violent riots that are happening all across America, particularly large cities like Seattle, Portland, Chicago, New York, other cities that are, are violent lawlessness. The law enforcement in those cities has been hamstrung by their political leadership or just unable because it's gotten so far out of hand to maintain law and order. Um, that, that's my answer to that part of the question. Uh, and you, you believe the majority of these protests are not peaceful. Is that that's what you're saying? Well, I don't know. I mean. If you get into the words majority, are, are there, in fact, peaceful protests happening right now? Yes. But if you look at the examples that I mentioned, Portland, Seattle, Chicago, New York, and others, uh, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, many of those are clearly not peaceful. And many of those situations were literally out of control where there was no law and order. So uh, 
majority, are there plenty of peaceful protests? Yes, but many of these movements have been hijacked by people with violent intentions, and that's where law and order needs to be empowered to do the job they need to do. So, so let's let's bring that um, more to to the district, right? When you talk about law and order and you talk about safety, one thing you said is that you're going to do all everything in your power to protect law enforcement institutions and ensure our communities are kept safe. Um, how can you do that from your seat on the federal level? I think just just uh, you know to make sure that that your local communities remain safe beyond what we're seeing in, 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 across the country elsewhere. But but what's happening here specifically? Day to day type crimes. Well, obviously, it is largely a local issue as far as how law enforcement's handled and funded. But positions that I would take and, and to whatever degree appropriate at the federal level to try to bring in is um, what I think is law enforcement needs more funding. They do need more and more and better training and they need diversity training in the sense of that their jobs. They're no longer just police officers. They're no longer arresting so-called bad guys and putting them in jail and then turning them over to, to the legal system to handle. They have to deal, and I'm very proud that I've served on the board for several years of NAMI, which is a national alliance on mental illness. The law enforcement duties clearly overlap with mental illness now. Many, pardon me, many local agencies have in fact special mental, mental illness trained officers that are available to respond for those type of calls, as well as uh, addiction issues that again has become a big part of what a law enforcement officer has to do. So what, what I would say is, so they need training, they need to be able to be skilled to handle all these other, what I would call in the military additional duties, as well as just to be supported. The other one is staffing. Uh, in some of the tougher neighborhoods, they may call tough beats, the idea of having two police officers per car, things like that. And that is potentially where federal funding could be involved and help with those situations. Um, you've also talked about your diverse background in public service and experience advocating for people within the court system. How can you work to specifically address inequities when it comes to our justice system um, beyond some of the recently passed federal legislation we've seen? Like, how would you take things a step further um, to, to address systemic inequalities? Sure. Well, I do believe President Trump started with um, reforming the crime bill that was very disproportionate penalties that significantly uh, and disproportionately affected minority communities. And so I would support that. I would support uh, giving uh, judges flexibility to handle cases on individual basis. Um, as far as my background, I have in fact been an advocate based style of law. I'm a trial lawyer. I've tried over 40 different jury trials many of them high dollar, high stakes, high pressure situations where the lives as well as the, the futures of my clients have been at stake and have been privileged and honored to do so. What I think is sort of that diverse background that you mentioned between being an engineer by training and education, having nine years of service in the army, being an advocacy based lawyer that helped individual clients as opposed to large corporations, it provides me with a very unique and diverse skill set that'll help prepare me to handle sort of the, the myriad of topics that obviously congressmen have to deal with. So uh, as opposed to being one sort of career lifelong and then going into Congress and not really having a breadth of knowledge on a lot of different subjects, I think that makes me very well prepared to handle all the tasks at hand. Um, and, and you know, you, you talk about uh, uh, 
a lot of a lot of the things that you stand for. Um, I do want to touch a little bit on this COVID nineteen pandemic as well. Um, you know, especially when it comes to to inequities, um, those types of things. Are, are there any? Is there anything that you think that could happen uh, more immediately um, on the federal level if you were to be elected um, to to kind of um, to curb this? this pandemic, not only for, for everyone, but particularly um, for minor ethnic and racial minority groups? Well, one thing I would support is continuing on with federally mandated legislation to have uh, an eviction uh, moratorium. So people that are, are paying rent and have been obviously affected by COVID, many people still to this day with what's happened in Ohio and across America have not been able to return to work or not been able to return to work to the financial or income earning capacity of before, I would support that. I would support a single item piece of legislation that would push through a stimulus that would go to all eligible Americans, which is most, um, and just do that simply and cut out on both sides of the aisle, the bickering and a lot of the pork that's being thrown in, frankly, from both sides and have a simple clean bill that would provide direct relief to individual citizens. And I would support that. If you could only accomplish one thing in your first term, what would that be? Again, it would be to promote and, and advocate for legislation that would continue to create favorable conditions to provide incentives, which a lot of it is tax-based and other incentives so that we bring back good jobs, good quality, high-paying jobs to the North Coast of Ohio. This region has been devastated in the last 40 years uh, especially adversely affected by NAFTA, which was enacted in the mid 90s. And anything, and, and a region can't survive unless the people that live there, the hardworking men and women, are able to make a, a livable wage and earn a living. So I would promote anything that would do that. And that comes in the form of incentives to companies, lower taxes for, for individuals, as well as we have, and it ties to this job uh, situation is, We've outsourced, we've basically turned, outsourced a lot of our jobs overseas. We've sold our country out to China. I would conti continue to take positions that would be hard line positions against China. You know, we have a national security issue with our supply chain and some of the industries affected, medical supplies and devices, pharmaceuticals, manufacturing, steel, te uh, technological, te technology type things as well as precious metals all being controlled by what's well, not only just an economic competitor, but a geopolitical adversary, which is China. So promoting those policies that would end up bringing good quality jobs back to the North Coast is what the thing I would be most proud to accomplish. You also mentioned nuclear energy, uh, but here in the state of Ohio, of course, uh, the AG has filed that civil lawsuit um, to to stop uh, stop some of the rate increases um, that people will pay um, regarding Davis Bessey and the issues that are going on there. Um, I guess what are your thoughts on what's happening here locally and how someone at the federal level um, can assist? Well, I, if you're alluding to sort of the corruption scandal that happened that came with the passage of that bill, the fact is that's wrong. There's corruption at all levels of government including federal level, which is part of a big part of my platform is sort of an anti-corruption. I'm a political outsider, anti-establishment candidate. Uh, but unfortunately, and particularly in this case, you can't throw out the good idea with the 
poor implementation and corrupt methodology that happened. Nuclear is, a, is the most viable source of energy in America. Again, I, I mentioned it's the cleanest, it's the safest, it's the most reliable and most efficient when it comes to that. It's the most affordable for citizens. Uh, so in that regard, the controversy that has rocked uh, the former Speaker of the House, you can't take, I don't think you should take that and then just say, well, see, there you go. Nuclear is a bad source of energy. Um, that you, you have to take the issues in isolation and look at them that way. Well, thank you so much for your time. I think we have about maybe 45 seconds or so less left. I'll ask if there's anything else you'd like to say. I again would just emphasize for the, and ask for the voter to look at my background and skill set, both academic and professional, and see that I truly am experienced, credentialed, and qualified to be in this position and running for this seat. And then take a look at my, my opponent, who's been there for 38 years, a very nice woman who's in her mid-70s, and look at what's happened to her communities, the north coast of Ohio, particularly the Toledo area, over the last 40 years. And I don't think anyone would say that we are better off now. I think the unanimous input would be that we're gravely much worse off. And to take a look at this and say, it is time for change. It's time to put someone new in there. It's time to put someone in that's not beholden to the political party establishment who actually serve the people and citizens of the ninth district. I would appreciate your support and vote in November. Thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mr. Weber. We appreciate your time today um, and giving your thoughts on the issues um, within the district you'd like to represent. So thank you. Thank you. And that brings us to the end of our discussion here today, um, this forum with the 2020 congressional candidates. I'd like to turn it back over now to Bill Levesi with uh, our final remarks. Thanks, Tiffany. I'm Bill Levesi, retired executive director of the Northeastern Ohio Education Association and the co-chair of the City Club's debate committee. Today's forum featured four congressional candidates, Aaron Godfrey, Democratic candidate for District 16, Hillary O'Connor Murray, Democratic candidate for District 14, Laverne Gore, Republican candidate for District 11, and Rob Weber, Republican candidate for District 9. Our community partner on today's forum is Cleveland Votes. We appreciate their support and partnership. City Club Virtual Forums are sponsored by the Bank of America, the Cleveland Foundation, Eaton, the George Gunn Foundation, KeyBank, Nordson, the Northeastern Ohio Regional Sewer District, and PNC, and the many more generous members, sponsors, and donors listed on our website at cityclub.org. Thank you. You can join them in supporting the City Club's work when you make a contribution online or become a member at cityclub.org. Thanks for joining us today. Our forum is now adjourned. <laughs>